Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Wednesday 15th of September. Today is the day when a new documentary comes out about Michael Schumacher on Netflix. And we're joined today by two people who know his career incredibly well. Longtime journalist Jonathan Noble reporting on Michael's career, pretty much for most of the most of it. And also Motorsport Network President James Allen. Of course, longtime commentator, James, you know, reporter, writer, Michael Schumacher, biographer. Uh, your book covered many of the things that we see in this documentary, but what was that, 2007, 2008? It, James, we'll start with you. When you hear about a new documentary coming out about Michael, did you think, oh, is there anything new to say? Would you go into it open-minded? And after watching it, did your opinion change about what you thought might be in a Schumacher documentary? And of course, I will mention... Uh, your voice is the first one we hear. So, you know, for the listeners that haven't seen it yet, you are in it, uh, or your voice is all the way through it. So, James, you've watched that. You had a preview link. Tell us, you know, what you thought of of the telling of Michael's story in the year 2021. It's a very interesting piece of work, actually. I mean, I think to set the scene, really, for, for people who are going to be watching it from today onwards, uh, now it's hit Netflix, it's made very much in the style of Senna. So if people you know, saw Senna, they, they liked Senna, that kind of narrative storytelling, sort of emotive music in the background, personal contributions from people he raced against, his family, and then myself and Richard Williams, who are kind of like a narrative strand, if you like, through it, as you say. I really enjoyed it, I have to say, in, in, in terms of the emotional punch that it packed. And there's absolutely a lot to say. I mean, Michael was seven-time Formula One world champion. The question I get asked more often 
than any other still. And I'm sure John is the same uh, by, by members of the public or people that you meet who, who are interested in our sport is, how is Michael Schumacher? What's, what's going on with Michael Schumacher? I've been asked that question so many times in the last four or five years. And um, so I think, although it doesn't address that directly, there's some notes in there, particularly from his wife, Corinna, about you know what life is like today with Michael. But it's obviously a celebration of his career. And it's, it's fairly objective as well. I mean, it was, it was very much the, the, the Schumacher family were very involved in the production of this, of this film. And they wanted it out there. They wanted his career to sort of be, you know, reconsidered and, uh, and what have you. It's pretty objective in the way it looks at the downs as well as the ups, if you like. The collisions, the famous collisions with Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve. The, the questioning, I don't know about you, John, but I was really interested to see Jean Todd talking about who was the obviously Ferrari team boss with Schumacher at the time, now FIA president, but talking about how there were doubts. Uh, you know, did they have the right guy you know, in the late 90s when they kept missing out year after year? Did that uh, surprise you a little bit hearing Jean say that? It did actually, because it's one of these problems of um, having a biography film is that you kind of need access, the behind the scenes access, which involves the family or the close friends, if you're going to get the real story, what these, what these people like behind the scenes. But then that opens up criticisms that it becomes a sugar-coated story and only shows the positive sides, not the downsides. But I think they got the balance pretty right here. Ross talks about Michael at Hereth in 97, adamant after the crash that he wasn't at fault, that Villeneuve had taken him out and that they brought him back into the garage. It was only when they showed him a video of the crash that his opinion changed slightly. So they do talk about this. And yeah, that, that Jean Todd moment when we've had 98 and uh, 99 with Mika Hakkinen winning the championships and the, those first doubts and Michael having also the doubts himself that was he the right man? And Corinna talks about, you know, the winters, they would go away and shut off completely from Formula One. Um, Michael would let, let the training go down a bit and then just start ramping up at the start of the season. And then he would tell Corinna, I'm, I'm not sure if I can do this still and I've got doubts about myself and my own performance. So... What I like about the film is that it shows both sides of him. There is the Michael, the racing driver, his steely competitiveness. Uh, and I think you, you even see that from that karting video when he's at the Junior World Championships. And the interviewer asks him, well, why are you racing for Luxembourg and not Germany? And he talks about, well, we couldn't afford the, the entry fees for Germany. And if we lose, we're not out of the World Championship. So it's just this mindful, complete determination that every single element is there for, for success. Uh, and I think that's what comes along. He was always looking for that competitive advantage, wasn't he? That's the thing with Michael all the way through his career. And I think they reflect that quite well. The amount, there's a sequence where they show him just testing and it's actually going dark and they're still driving and they've still got more tyres that he wants to test. And it's just a, that relentless search for that small fraction, that additional um, incremental gain that obviously lots of sports and people like, you know, GB Cycling have picked that up in more recent times, Team Sky, etc. But I mean, Schumacher and Ferrari were doing that back then. But you realise, as you say, John, that he was doing it right from the very beginning of his career, always looking for the, for the, for the advantage, the competitive advantage. I feel it was an education in Michael as a person. Now, I'm a few years younger than you guys. My first F1 race was Silverstone in 94. My parents took me to it. So what I was, I'm born 78, so I was 16. And what a race to go to. You know, cheating Damon, ignoring the black flag, disqualified. I get the feeling, as a, someone growing up, getting into Formula 1 motorsport, it was before I was buying Autosport magazine and, and really into like the technical side of it. So I was soaking up the British mainstream media. My 
impression of him at the time as a young sports fan was of the German Dick Dastardly to the plucky hero Brit Damon in the eyes of the media. You know, then, of course, Australia that year turning in on Damon. We'll come on to controversial moments a little bit later in the podcast. But, James, is my memory correct? Tell me I'm wrong. You know, it was many years ago. How did the British media treat Michael? How did the motorsport media treat Michael? And how did that play into how his career... The, you know, the lens through which so many fans saw him as a racer and as a person as well. Well, I think what you have to remember here, Martin, is that, you know, this all happened in the shadow of the death of Ayrton Senna. I mean, Senna had died at, on the 1st of May 1994, and Formula One at that point lost its greatest star. We'd had Prost, we'd had Mansell, we had these really big beasts that were around. Um, and all of a sudden, it was just basically... Uh, Michael Schumacher, who hadn't at that point won a world championship, young German guy, and Damon Hill, who was the sort of number two thrust into the limelight in the car that should be winning the championship, the Williams. And so Bernie Eccleston, who was running Formula One at the time, needed a new narrative desperately. And Bernie was brilliant with uh, working with the, particularly the tabloid press. And they loved him and he always fed them a line. I don't know for sure, but I lived through that. I was there at the time. And I, I do remember that there was this very much this narrative, exactly as you describe it, of the plucky Brit underdog against the, sort of, against the German sort of dick dastardly, sort of who's got it all covered, who's, who's kind of perfect and, and all the rest of it. But he's, he's not above, um, you know, punching someone below the belt type of thing. And the British public lapped that up. I mean, there were magazines that were launched off the back of it that was, and in Germany as well, that were basically just adversarial pictures of Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher, basically. And so that was a narrative that Formula One needed, I guess, in particularly in those two markets, because it was reeling uh, after the death of Senna. Of course, like all of these caricature narratives, there was an element of truth about it, but it's not, it wasn't what it was really all about. I mean, Michael was finding his feet, you know, he was, he was getting better. He was now clearly the best driver in, in Formula One going forward, and he was going to be the bloke to beat. And there was, it was a bit of a mismatch. I mean, Damon was, was a, is a super guy and it was a decent driver, but he wasn't saying remotely on the same level as Michael Schumacher, as he would freely admit himself. So it was kind of a, it, that narrative was kind of needed. And I think it was just really about Michael you know, winning those championships. But what happened was this sort of thing that got stuck to him, you know, there was the, the, the refueling issue, you know, where they'd taken the filters out of the refueling. So there was, there was this notion that the team was sort of doing underhand things and he needed to get himself away from that. That, along with a bunch of other factors, is why he made the move to Ferrari because he wanted a he wanted a fresh challenge, he wanted a clean break, but he also wanted to get away from those sort of suggestions of, of untoward behaviour. John, they focus a lot on pre multiple world championships and they come back to his story afterwards they don't really focus a lot that era is probably a two-hour documentary of its own but how did you feel about the netflix documentary in terms of the areas they chose to focus on in his life i thought it's quite interesting actually because i went into it watching it not really sure what to expect and you think you'd think a schumacher documentary on netflix would have to be you know appeal to the masses so it would therefore focus purely on the ferrari years this is what he's most famous for but actually, beyond the first Ferrari championship, that's quite compressed the rest of the success at Ferrari. And I think it's a much more fascinating story, the, the step up from karting and the, the stories about him taking old used kart tyres out of the bins at his dad's kart track and going out and using them to win races. And then when it's raining, him and Ralph being sent out on slick tyres in the wet just to learn how to handle these cars in the wet. So all these 
little details. And I think the way it follows it all, and it's done with, you know, home movies and family photographs and a lot of reliance. There is race footage in there, but there's a lot of reliance on snippets of films that haven't really been covered in detail on on kind of TV or movies before. And even YouTube's all unofficial footage because it's kind of the pre-YouTube era. So, you know, you've got that um, confrontation between Ayrton Senna and Michael on the grid at Manicor in 92 after Schumacher had hit Ayrton on the first lap. You've got that fascinating moment behind the podium at Imola when Flavio informs Michael that, you know, Senna's condition's not good, um, looks like a coma and stuff. And just that's when the, the reality comes in. And it's good choices of interviews, the emotions you hear Michael talk about post Imola, about, um, you know, what was going through his head and the, the, the hours after the race when people are telling him, you know, Senna's dead and he can't believe it. He says you, you, the reality doesn't hit him. And he talks about going to Silverstone um, and looking at corners thinking, well, if I crash here, I could be dead. And if I crash here, I could be dead. And if I crash here, I could be dead. And just this this reality. So I think there's a lot of, it pulls a lot to explain things from his perspective that haven't been explored in detail before. Because even if you Google these things now, they're not readily accessible. This was, you know, pre, pre-autosport.com almost. That, you know, websites were just starting and you get nowhere near the detail. You know, we have the, the Max Verstappen-Lewis Hamilton crash on Sunday. You know, millions and millions of words have been written about that probably all over the world and endless videos and YouTube footage and 360-degree videos and podcasts and social media posts. But you look at these controversial moments, you know, Villeneuve and Schumacher at Jerez 97. You know, there's a few YouTube videos and magazines at the time, but you haven't had this background and insight and detail like this before, which I, I think is just quite fascinating, just stepping behind the curtain a little bit. I think that's a really, really interesting observation, John. And what I took out of that as well is that for most people from the outside, they would see Michael Schumacher as one of the hardest men in world sport. You know, this is a guy who would go wheel to wheel with Mansell at 180 mile an hour on the straight. He'd, he'd crash into Senna. He would crash into Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve. I mean, these were hard guys, you know. Um, but the only time he kind of, that veneer broke was the time he burst into tears, which is in the film after he won um, in Monza in 2000. And, and so much emotion was let out. There was a whole cocktail of reasons why that happened on the day, which um, which have to do with, there was a Marshall killed that day. It also had to do with equaling a Senna record and all sorts of other things. But he just basically lost it and was crying. And Mika Hakkinen was coming to sort of console him. But apart from that moment, in the eyes of most people around the world, he was, he was a ruthless, tough, you know, rock hard shell of a guy. But actually, probably John and my, certainly myself knew a, a much more sensitive person than that. Um, and he had to put this veneer up around himself, this, this persona, this aura of an invincible person, because actually the person inside was, as Jean Todd says in the film, uh, quite shy and, 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 and actually quite sensitive in, in, in some ways. Um, and I think that's one of the triumphs of this film is to show the, the, that side of Michael, the, the, the interview John refers to about, you know, his, um, which was obviously done sometime after 1994, but not, not that long after where he's reflecting on his thoughts on, on learning that Senna was, 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 had been killed. You know, I've never seen that before, and I thought that was incredible. I was, re- and he's speaking in English as well, so I can't really understand how I've never seen that before. I don't know who did it, but it's uh, it's amazing. And I think that's one of the things that, that probably the thing that most 
general motorsport fans will take out of this. They probably know a bit of the story of how he got there, but it's the behind the scenes and that sensitivity that that side of him with his family and the emotion and everything else. And, um, and obviously the other, the other part being the sympathy that they'll have for his, his wife and his son in particular, who make a really emotional punch in this film. There's a, there's a scene on the grid in 92. Senna is trying to give him a, a dressing down over a previous incident where they came together. There's swear words. That's all in, included. But you'd never, ever get to see that because that wouldn't make it onto the world feed because it was a, it was, it, they were surrounded by press, but it was you know pretty strong language. And Schumacher was giving the steely glaze back. Not disrespectful, but he wasn't kowtowing to the great Ayrton. You know, I gather that even the Italian media that worships their Ferrari drivers, there were times when even the Italian media weren't massively positive on, on Michael, partly because he had this such a tough exterior. James, you know, you know Corinna, you know his extended family, management, Sabine. Were you surprised? I was certainly surprised at how much home video footage they gave this documentary because it... It completely opened my eyes to Michael as the husband, as the dad, as the, they feature his, his, his dad, so Michael the son. I was surprised how much access was given to the, the home catalogue of video footage. Yeah, no, not really, to be honest, because I think that's, that's what you need in a film like this, particularly in this day and age. You know, you, you, people want to tap into that emotional resonance. resonance. They want to see the human being behind, the, behind this sort of the mystique and the aura. And I think if they hadn't done that, it probably wouldn't have landed anything like as well as it's going to. Because I think this will be very successful. I think a lot of people will really, really enjoy it. Netflix has sort of established itself as a, as a place to go to, obviously, for all kinds of great content, but, but particularly for, for Drive to Survive. You know, there's a lot of people who will find this because they've, they're, 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 they like Drive to Survive, and I think it will be very successful. And so you needed to have all of that. And, and I think the Schumacher family have kept a lot of that stuff back very specifically for the day in which it, it might be appropriate to, 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 to wheel some of that stuff out. And this is absolutely the right occasion because I don't know about you, John, but my, my feeling is this is probably it now. I don't, I don't think we'll hear too much more after this. They've said what they want to say. It's Mick's story. It goes forward from here. He's going to try and build a career as a Formula One driver and hopefully, you know, emulate some of the feats of his, of his father. I'm not sure we'll, there'll be any kind of follow up to this from around Michael. This is, this is his story. I don't know what you think. There won't be a film after this. I don't think, I don't think you can, there's nothing that can, you'd expect to change dramatically to prompt that this film needs redoing or it's there. The, the summer is there. Um, the career, the career is defined. We learn a lot more about kind of the man um, and the family. And I think the, the Mick thing is especially interesting right at the very end of the film because, you know, you can s- sense the emotions from Corinna uh, when she talks about, you know, Michael not being there but being there um, and the difficulties. And then it's the Mick comments actually which were more, I felt more moving. And he talks about, you know, reflecting on family videos and looking how they were as a family with, you know, Michael and him and his sister and mum doing stuff and he says other, other kids get to do that now and I don't and that's unfair and he talks about how he'd like to be having imagine the conversations that he'd like to be having with with his dad about racing and Formula One and battling into corners and tactics and stuff and he just thinks he'd give up everything to be able to do that so I think those are the those are the moments and takeouts that I think kind of really hit home hit home at the end and also the story about why he decided his Mercedes stint that that's you know that's probably enough. Sabine talks about um, a moment when he said to her, "What am I doing here? 
I miss my family. Why am I so far away? He says, I've realized it isn't as important as it used to be. My family is more important now. And for anyone interested in sport champions of all sports, not just motor racing, but how great champions get to their peak and then where do they go? You know, we think a lot about, well, what happens to Lewis when he decides enough's enough? Very few people do a Rosberg. You know, lots of people want to carry on. And I think... With him as well, with Michael, there was always the story of a great champion that kind of came back but wasn't at his peak and wasn't with a team that could win championships, let alone races. I felt that the documentary really gave an insight into why he went to Mercedes to help build up a young team, why he felt that his job wasn't done. But there was a point when he felt like his job was done. And that was all about family and just he was away. I think it was a flyaway race of series and he was he didn't he chose not to fly home. And that part of the story I hadn't fully appreciated because I think with sports people, great sports people, you assume, well, they're not as quick as they used to be. So they knocked it on the head. But it wasn't the case with him, James. It was all about family. Yeah. And it's interesting. Jacques Clare gave an interview recently on the Formula One podcast in which he actually paid credit to Michael for having been one of the architects of the current Mercedes success obviously he's now at Ferrari but he was talking about his jockeys now at Ferrari but but he was talking about how Michael in those years was was putting in place this, a lot of the building blocks for the team that um that it became which Lewis and uh, and Rosberg obviously benefited from um and I thought that was very interesting and, and of course that would be absolutely true and it would be one of the main reasons why Ross wanted to get him there because he knew what a great team builder he was which is again a little bit comes out in the film I know that because that's it features quite prominently in the my my book about him that you referred to earlier on the kind of the nearest thing there'll be to a biography really it's called The Edge of Greatness that came out in 2007 it's got a full kind of analysis with a lot of input from the people around him as to how he operated and how he was so successful I think that's a really important part of the of the story that, that that's not to be underestimated and John you knew Michael before Formula One or at least you got his his signature very very early when you were a, a motorsport fan what was he what was he competing in then well I think yes yeah, this was before I worked in Formula One I think I was still at um maybe school doing A-levels um, I'd gone to Silverstone and we heard about this uh, or read about this hotshot kid coming up called Michael Schumacher who's driving sports cars for Mercedes and um, I went to the sports car race at Silverstone and managed to get his autograph so just in the you know probably he was pretty much unknown at the time I remember it's between the, the two paddocks at Silverstone um, it's still there in my office somewhere. It's my old autograph book. I think it was the same weekend I got Ross Braun's autograph as well when he was at, wow, when he was at Jaguar. Yeah, so who didn't know where they came they came together? But um, yeah, so he's someone that I was um, you know aware of even before he got to Formula One, just having read about it at the time. I, I, there was also quite an amusing bit in the film where um, uh, Willy Weber mentions talking to Eddie Jordan about um, after Gashow had being taken out because of the incident in London and was in jail and needed a driver. Vili Weber says, you need to take Michael. And Eddie goes, well, who, who is he? I've never heard of him. <laughs> and he talks about well, he's won Macau and Fuji and all this sort of thing. And then it flicks to a video of Eddie Jordan saying, oh, obviously, he's, you know, I always bring up good talent. I followed him throughout Formula <laughs> 3. I thought it was quite a good little, whether it was done on purpose or not, I don't know. But I thought it was just yeah. quite a funny little, quite a funny little juxtaposition. 
I think that's a bit of a wind up by Willie Weber. There's no way that Eddie Jordan didn't know who Michael Schumacher was at that point because he, as you say, he'd won Macau and very controversially as well, because he, I mean, Hakkinen had crashed or Hakkinen had crashed, uh, in a, in a wheel to wheel dice at Macau. It was, everybody was talking about that. It was everywhere. It was, um, and then at Le Mans, I, I was actually at Le Mans that year when he was driving the Mercedes and that was, I was, I'd, I'd never seen him in the flesh before racing. I'd obviously was aware of what had happened at Macau, but, uh, I, I, he got in that Mercedes and I was out on the course i was like who is driving that car because it was absolutely flying it was and it was oh it's just schumacher and then when i watched him very carefully watched the lap times very carefully throughout the race and whenever he got in the car he was just faster than the other guys he was more consistent and it was just like this is this guy has really got something special and ross braun not in this film but generally has talked about because he was racing against Michael at that time. That's when he first really got to understand his capabilities because he was in charge of, of, of Jaguar. And he was like, whenever Michael was in the car, we had to have a different strategy from the rest of the drivers because he was just so much better than they were. And that was when he really locked into the fact that, we, that you know, um, that Schumacher was something special. So I, I think, um, you know, I think that, I think that, that, that comes through really, really closely, really carefully in the, in the film, really clearly. But what I was going to say about the point earlier as well is that, is that you mentioned about the, the, the fire going out. You know, my experience of racing drivers, the, the, as they get towards the end of their career, this, it goes one of two ways. It's really binary. They either aren't as good as they used to be, their reactions aren't as good, and they fade out, but not necessarily willingly. And there you're thinking about people like Nigel Mansell, who never really kind of officially announced he'd retired. And there's a bunch of other people you can think of. Or the fire goes out and they don't want to do it anymore. Nicky Lauda, Damon Hill, Gerhard Berger, people like that. You know, just know, you know. And my dad was a racing driver and his fire never went out. So I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and, um, and Michael's fire never went out. And that's one of the reasons why he threw himself out of aeroplanes with such frequency as a skydiver. And it's one of the reasons why he took a lot of chances. And sadly, I think it probably led to the accident ultimately that he had, you know, because uh, he, he was a, he was a daredevil. I want to talk about two final things before we before we wrap up. Firstly, if you love Formula One, you'll love this in terms of, you know, whenever you hear a story being told about greats, um, whether it is um, a great duel, a great battle, like there's going to be a movie made or a Netflix documentary. As a as a as a Formula One fan, you always think, oh, I hope they get it right because you know Formula One fans understand what Netflix do with Drive to Survive, but those that follow you know the chronology of a season will watch it and go well that didn't even happen at that weekend but you know it's there for entertainment i do want to say that there is they have got so much race footage it doesn't you know it's not hung on on it but it, there's a lot of home video footage and more as well but there's a lot of race footage i think formula one fans will love this i do want to just kind of finish off james and talk about the, the story does come up to date they do talk about his accidents and they are very honest they don't talk about his current condition you know the closest we get i think is you know, Jean Tot occasionally over the last couple of years, once or twice, has given up an, a, a very small update. So they don't go into his current condition, but they do bring the story up to date. Do you think that was important that they didn't shy away from that? It's it's in, enormously hard to, to tell that story. Yeah, fundamental. I mean, and also towards the end of the film, his wife says, you know, he's 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 here, but he's different. Or different, but here is the way she phrases it, I think, which got picked up a bit in the press last week when the, when the previews of the film started coming out. And that, that's as much as they, as they, as they want to say. And as I said at the beginning of this recording, you know, the question I get asked the most often is, you know, how is Michael Schumacher? What's, you know, what's his condition? And it's the question that, that millions and millions of people around the world want to know. And, and 
you know, it's interesting how the perceptions of him have changed, you know, from I'm sure a lot of people who didn't like him when he was racing and, and didn't like some of the things that he did are now very sympathetic to him and, and have a soft spot for him. And I can assure anyone listening to this that when you watch this film, uh, you will have more of a soft spot for Michael, even more of a soft spot when you've watched this film than than going into it because um, it just shows, it shows the Michael that, I mean, I don't claim to have known him like incredibly well. I worked, I covered his entire career. Obviously, he, I was in Formula One already when he started. I had a lot to do with him. I interviewed him many times. I spent quite a bit of time behind the scenes with him as well, obviously, including working on two books. Um, so the the Michael I knew is reflected extremely well in this film. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other sides to him. Um, uh, you know, I never did any of the wild partying or anything that's kind of referred to, but I, I've talked to David Coulthard about it, who did a lot of that. And he said, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun and that is kind of reflected in there. But, but anyway, the Michael I knew is very well reflected in this film. Brilliant. Well, that's, so thank you so much for your time today, guys. We all got to see that before it was released, but it is out now and we'd love to hear from you listening to this, you know, what you think of it. And of course you can find James and John on social media. Feel free to contact them and, uh, drop them a message or a uh, a couple of lines on what you think of the documentary and we'd love to know your thoughts as well. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just $2.50. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.